Welcome to the Returning Warrior podcast with me, your host, Adam Gornell. This podcast is about the human story, and there is no greater story than the hero's journey. Each of us face our own challenges, trials, and tests in life, and it takes the courage of a warrior to overcome those challenges. I shall be interviewing some of the most inspirational people I know. Together, we will retell their hero's journey and discover how they did it, what they learned, and how you can use what they discovered. Welcome to the Returning Warrior Podcast. When you hear the word resilience, what do you imagine? What comes to mind? Is it a tough person, a non-emotional person? Maybe Rocky Balboa, he just keeps getting back up no matter how hard he's put down. Well, for me, resilience is a byproduct of living a life of self-mastery and purpose. The sentence that best captures this is the famous quote by Viktor Frankl, and I quote, He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how, end quote. This guiding star that supports you through life's challenges and tests on your way to achieving your goals. But what happens when these challenges are so big, so complex, or are stacked on top of each other? What then? Well, It is here that a rare level of resilience is needed. My next guest is one of the most incredible living examples of rare resilience that I've ever seen. As a single mother of two, running a successful psychology practice, she was one day hit in her car by an articulated lorry. Miraculously, she walked away from the incident, apparently unharmed. What was about to be triggered, however, would leave her with an incredibly rare condition where she would slowly suffer from internal decapitation as her connective tissues began to deteriorate rapidly. One of the cruelest twists of this condition is the body's rejection of anaesthesia. That is to say, there's no way of stopping the literal bone-crushing agony of slowly dislocating under her own weight. My next guest is a testimony to the power of the human spirit. Taken each day at a time, She has found a purpose among the darkness and is now on a mission to support those lost in their own rare conditions. This is a powerful story and it's an honour to introduce to you, Samantha Liu. Samantha, hi and thank you for coming on the Returning Warrior podcast. How are you today? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm not too bad, thank you. I'm okay. We had a little conversation off air and I know you're... um, yeah, having one of those days, right? We need a little bit of more extra support and, and help. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm having a high pain day and that just uh, leads to a bit of brain fog, so. I can imagine, crikey, yeah. Um, well, really, I am. I came across I came across you um, not that long ago, really, maybe just over a week ago, I think. I, I, mm-hmm. I found you on LinkedIn and we, we started chatting briefly and um, I was uh, caught first and foremost by... Uh, the name rare resilience mm-hmm. um, of of the I guess is that your is that the coaching company is that the coaching business that you have? It's it's I guess I am in the throes of starting to try to change my experiences into a direction as such, and rare resilience captures that. So um, I guess yeah I guess coaching company um, brand. I'm not sure yet. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, no, I, 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 um, 
it's those transitional periods from going from what you've experienced how to sort of deliver it in a way that helps others is is definitely a journey I've been on and it's um it's an interesting one sometimes Mm -hmm. hard to articulate but um but so yeah so that that was the first thing that sort of uh, attracted me to you and then I read your story and I hope that you know we can do it justice in in this episode um Mm -hmm. I for one was inspired and really moved actually by you know what you've experienced and how you're able to navigate life continue to navigate life so um as with every episode i start the conversations by asking what the call to adventure was that moment that life presented itself to you and um we'll go from there so yeah okay um so towards the end of 2016 i was 29 and um single mom of two had been for eight years at that point um and was running um a successful psychology business private clinic um i thought i had everything sourced and i thought that was back home five years ahead of my career plan i'm you know i've got everything the way i want it to be and um on my way home from work one day i was hit by an articulated lorry or my car was to be honest I got out of the car and although I was in pain it wasn't um I was quite surprised at the lack of damage you know and the lack of how bad it could have been and I came away feeling fairly lucky a few days later I started to have seizures and I guess well, that led on to a series of events which left me fighting for my life numerous times. And the call to adventure for me was initially that wake-up call, you know, that wake-up call of how quick everything can suddenly be taken away. Um, And I didn't have a choice but to then fight for a diagnosis. I was misdiagnosed numerous times. and then refused the life-saving surgeries that I needed in this country, which left me having to fundraise half a million pound. So it was a case of accepting each one of these situations and choosing to carry on each time. Mm. I think was my my call to adventure. It was, uh, do I crowdfund for these neurosurgeries or do I listen to the doctors and do what I'm, what they're advising I do and let, let this happen and die. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So could you sort of elaborate a little bit more about what it was that was going on? What was the, the yeah. Um, so I began, like I said, I began having seizures and I lived on my own with the children. Um, so when I contacted the doctor and told them about these seizures, they wanted to know who'd witnessed them. Well, initially, I'd been in the house on my own and all I knew was that I was waking up and, you know, my body was jerking or sometimes I'd be laughing um, and just this complete lack of control of of my body. And because there were no witnesses, I don't think I was taken seriously um, initially. And over the next few weeks, my life gradually began to deteriorate or my health began to deteriorate. And... I started to lose cognitive functioning. I would be paralyzed intermittently. 
um, completely impartial. I couldn't speak. I would slur my I would slur my speech. I couldn't find my words. Um, and the pain was just immense from my neck into my skull. I kept being hospitalised, and nobody could find the cause of it. Um, at this point, I didn't link it to this accident that I mentioned before. Um, I think there was such a fast cognitive decline that I didn't have the ability to link the two together. Right. It was about 18 months later, no, about, about six months later, when a doctor told me what the link was. But basically, um, I ended up on this journey of trying to find a diagnosis, trying to figure out what was happening. And doctors, my doctor would tell me, you're too tired, you know, you're stressed, you've got too much on, you've got two children and businesses. Um, and I was saying, no, it's more than that. You're not understanding that. I'm forgetting my children's name. I am forgetting my way home from a workplace I've, I've been to and from every day for 10 years. Um, it eventually, I went private, private healthcare, and I started looking online, trying to find answers. And I had a couple of MRI scans um, with the NHS, which came back and said that everything was fine. And so I was discharged. Um, online research led to me discovering that actually I... I really related to people who had this rare condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And that's a connective tissue um, disease. It's something that you're born with. And it presents differently in different people, but it basically means that the glue, the collagen that holds your whole body together from your joints through to your heart, your organs, um, that that's weak. It's built slightly different to other people's. And I recognize these symptoms in, in people on, you know, group forums and things like that. I pushed for a diagnosis um, eventually traveled to London to see a professor and he diagnosed me as having this condition. Um, so first and foremost, it was, right, okay, you've got Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There's no cure for it. There's no treatment for it. Um, you won't really get any help in the UK, but you will potentially become quite poorly with it and it's been in your family for generations um that alone was I say a shock but actually it was probably more um validating because I'd known for so long that something was wrong um and then I, I you know he could see that I was clearly very unwell I was wheelchair bound at this point um I had a bad tremor vomiting blood daily uh, couldn't keep food down losing weight dramatically weight loss um and he considered that I might have this condition which is only visible on an upright MRI because of the effect that gravity has on a person with loose connective tissues so he said that generally when I've been lying down in any in the NHS MRI everything's fallen back into place in my spine and neck um, if I was to have an upright MRI where I'm sitting upright, then they might be able to see what's happening. And he thought that maybe the weight of my skull was crushing my spinal cord and the rest of my spine. Or my brainstem was herniating out of my skull and being crushed by my spine. Um, long story short, um, I had these tests, these scans, and initially was diagnosed as having a slip disc and 
I remember ringing the doctor and saying, it's more than that. You're not understanding, like, this is more. And just couldn't get, could not get any answers. Um, I found that there were three doctors in the world who specialised in this condition. And it basically means that the condition itself is where your spine is collapsing. It's like a Jenga wall. Um, mine was... I was having issues from my skull um, down to my mid-spine. And I travelled to Barcelona with my mum, unsure whether or not he was going to say, you know, you just, you're too sensitive to pain or it's all in your head like the other doctors had said or, you know, it's just a slip disc or what was going to go on. And at this point, I was in a neck brace. I was wheelchair bound. Um, and I sat across from these two neurosurgeons in Barcelona and he told me that I had 95% brainstem disability um, and that my brain the weight of my skull caused by the accident and the connective tissues combined um, was causing my spine to collapse so it was compressing my spinal cord um, he said to me that I had eight weeks to live and during those eight weeks I would deteriorate quite rapidly from being paralyzed to organ failure to death um, he then told me that my skull was hanging on by five percent so I was internally decapitating and any wrong movement would cause instant death um, that was quite the shock and then um, I learned, I came home, um, didn't really know what to do with this information, didn't have a neurosurgeon, didn't have, you know, any of the things I needed. And um, eventually found a neurosurgeon who looked at me and said, um, we do do this surgery, but not on people with your connective tissue condition. And... Um, he said to me, if you choose to go ahead with this surgery, I pray and I hope you pray to die on the table. Because if you don't die on the table, then what waits for you beyond that is going to be far worse. At the time, I just thought it was cruel. Um, I didn't understand what, why you wouldn't help me. And um, that was the beginning of a campaign called Save Samantha, where friends and myself uh, had to raise hundreds of thousands of pounds very fast. Um, I think initially it was 250,000 pounds we needed within less than eight weeks at that stage mm -hmm. in order for me to travel to America to see one of the world top neurosurgeon in this condition and see whether or not he would operate on me. Um, we did that. We managed to raise the funds and you know, just lots of media, lots of, you know, pushing on social media, lots of interviews, overcoming a complete fear of public speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to America and this neurosurgeon said to me, you can't fly back home. You won't survive the journey back home. Um, this is what's happening. Your spine is collapsing. Your brainstem and your spinal cord are being crushed. And the surgery that they offer is to rebuild your spine and your skull um, and decompress 
your brainstem and your spinal cord. By doing that, they either remove your ribs and place your ribs into your neck along with titanium um, to try and stabilize everything, you know, to really reinforce your spine. But you lose movement of your head and spine, which is, it can look a little bit odd. And also this huge risks that come with the surgeries. Um, he also found that my spinal cord had tethered itself lower down my spine, so it attached itself it's supposed to be free flowing and it attached itself to my lower vertebrae in my lumbar spine in order to try and stabilize itself like anchor and so he had to untether that to release it because it was just damaging my spinal cord it was pulling on it all of the time um i went through the biggest surgery that he's ever done um on from my skull down to my mid spine um, where he placed hardware and at that point he used my own bone marrow um, as like a pace to try and stabilize my spine and um, it went I woke up from this surgery and the first thing I said was it hasn't worked my spine is still dislocating my shoulders were dislocated my sternum my, le my legs my hip um, and they didn't want to hear it and didn't believe it was possible for me to still be unstable or still be dislocating at this point because of the immense hardware that they put in my spine. Mm. Um, I was, and it took a month for me to evidence that with imaging. Um, during that month, I, I hit death's door. Um, I became extremely, extremely poorly. I wasn't conscious very often. Um, one of the cruel twists of my condition, which we found after the first surgery, is that I don't respond to uh, anaesthetic and I don't respond to pain relief. So when I'd had the initial surgery, you're supposed to be put in a three-day, you know, medically induced coma. And they couldn't put me in a coma. Um, I, I woke up in incredible pain. And the reason for this coma is because of the pain, because it's supposed to be too much to manage. So the doctors were trying to pump me with various drugs, you know, from LSD through to different cannabinoids. Um, ketamine was the main one and morphine. Um, so I had all these drugs in my system and we couldn't afford to keep me in the hospital. So I had to be discharged back to the hotel and spend the next month in a hotel room trying to convince them that this still hadn't worked, you know, and I needed more surgery. Um, I went back down for more surgery to stabilize higher up my skull um, and nearer to my brain but my body wasn't really strong enough for that surgery. And so there was, there was a lot of issues that came with, you know, with the recovery. And when you go to America and pay, I, I never really understood the American health system before. Um, to me, I imagined almost luxury when you pay in quarter of a million pound for care. Yeah. And it wasn't that, you know, I got there and it was a case of, 
okay, you're going to have to book your own room, find your own anaesthetist, find your own, you know, make sure the hospital bed's sorted for this amount of time and that they might have room for you in intensive care and things like that. And I didn't know how to do any of this, um, especially when I was so poorly. So that was quite a shock to the system. Following the second surgery, I was dislocating even lower down my spine and in my shoulders and my sternum still. And it, we realised that these surgeries of stabilising one part of my spine and leaving the rest to be able to move in the way it should do was causing incredible instability above and below the hardware, um, which meant that although I was no longer internally decapitating, my spine's in essence collapsing. Um, we couldn't... There was a lot of publicity around my story at the time. I had a lot of eyes on me and a lot of people who had invested in me and had been told that there was this 95% success rate and I'd had one surgery and I needed to fundraise fast for the second neurosurgery and then suddenly I know inside it isn't enough. Um, and I just wanted to come back home. I just wanted to come home. Um, we'd run out of money. So we came back home to England. This was after four or five months in the US with my children and my parents. And the combination of medications that they were, that they'd put me on um, had left me. You know, I lost touch with reality for quite a while. Um, then it was a case of, I think it hit me mentally. I spent the next year in bed at my parents' house. It was a case of there's no rehabilitation in the UK because I've been to the US for surgeries. So I had to neuro-rehabilitate myself. Um, I developed Addison's disease because my body had been under such stress and pain that it had burnt out of the, uh, the stress hormones that it produces. So that's a life-threatening condition. So I kept going into... Uh, life-threatening adrenal crisis over and over again until they diagnosed that and was basically having to learn to walk talk swallow um completely rehabilitate myself on my own with my help of family and friends and google um we got towards the end of 2018 and i had deteriorated even further i was back to having seizures um I couldn't walk, wheelchair, bed bound, just couldn't be upright. Every time I went upright, just it, I, my body would just completely shut down. Um, and we had to crowdfund again. But the surgeon who had initially worked on me was difficult to contact. Um, he has very high success rates. And I guess I wasn't one of them. Um, and it became quite tricky to get hold of him at that point because there's a lack of knowledge around the world with regards to this condition and surgeons who are willing to operate on us thank god i found a girl online in the us who'd been in a very very similar situation um and had found a doctor a neurosurgeon in arizona and we traveled out to arizona but just before christmas 2018 as we found him and thought, right, okay, we've, you know, we've fundraised the same amount as last time. It'll be a similar surgery. It'll, you know, 
I know what I'm doing here. We can get through this. We spoke to him and he told me in a five minute conversation on the phone that I deteriorated quite rapidly off the imaging that I'd sent over to him and we needed to be out there. Well, he'd asked me to come out the next week, but it was Christmas and I'd convinced myself I needed to have my last ever Christmas with my children. Um, And he then told me, I said, right, okay, I'm going to book it. I'm going to come out as soon as the new year's done. I'm going to be out there with my family. And he then told me that the price had trebled because the surgery was far more excessive. So we had to crowd run um, just over £300,000 over Christmas in, I think it was two and a half weeks. Um, I mentally, again, you said the call to adventure so many times here where I, I, it was all against me and it was a case of, do I want to do this? Do I want to keep doing this to my family? Do I want to keep doing it to myself? Do I? It's not easy going through that care system in America where if you don't have the funds, you're out, you know, back in a hotel or an Airbnb and my family are watching me 24-7 on medications that they don't understand. And there was a lot of pressure on people. And do I want to pressure my friends and family as well to try and gather these funds publicly because it was having strain on everybody, including especially the children. Um, The children asked me to fight. And I'd promised them that I would. So I did. And we got the money together. Um, I went to Arizona in 2019. And he, the surgeon, had a completely different, by the time I got there, the surgery completely changed all over again. And he said to me, I'm going to take out all of the hardware in your neck. Well, I already knew from people from groups online that there'd been two girls who needed this around the world in the months prior and none of them had survived. So this man was saying he was going to take out the hardware from the back of my my spine, snap every level of my spine up to my skull, every vertebrae, just crush it, reshape it, and then put hardware in and donor tissues. He was then going to flip me over on the bed, snap, uh, sorry, cut my throat, and then put hardware in through the front and do exactly the same again through the front of my neck. So I would have this double reinforcement because whatever was going on, my body was somehow working its way around it. And another question, do I want to go through that? Yeah. Um, and I dragged my family across the world on a 10 minute conversation. I suddenly thought, what on earth have I done? I did go through it. And we got through it and we got home um, mid-2019 back in England. And again, had to learn to walk, talk, swallow, uh, try not to aspirate my food and drinks, etc. again. And um, then COVID hit. <laughs> and we're now on our, our 13th month of shielding indoors and my children still haven't been to school. Um, so, it, yeah, it's been... Uh, from 2016 onwards it's been non-stop but I'm here and I'm wow. grateful wow so. I um I don't think I've ever witnessed such a harrowing uh experience um mm. I'm just I'm pretty uh speechless and blown away um my mind is going a million miles an hour in different directions and um I'm feeling the emotions um 
that are that are still there as well that you're when you're expressing um and i just mm -hmm. want to thank you so much for for actually you know saying what you just said and expressing the, your story and um okay wow it's um there's a lot more that that happened yeah. in between um that it's just hard to know how much to share and how much sure. to you know sure. it's a case of I um I, I've got a few things I I made some notes. Okay. I just want to sort of unpack a few things there. One mm -hmm. of the things that stood out for me there, um, how intuitive your connection to your body is. Mm -hmm. That to me was that was something that really stood out there. You know, you're saying you know when the moment you came round and you said um, no, I'm dislocating, and they were like no, no, you're fine, but you're like no, trust me, I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. That and leading up to it you 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 were just you just knew that, that it was not something was really off so that intuitive connection to your to your body i wonder and i want to ask you is is that something that you've always possessed or is this something that's emerged in this process um i think it's emerged i and it had to come alongside a confidence that I never used to have um, because otherwise you start to believe that you are imagining it. You know, that's what the specialist is saying. Um, so I think it's something that emerged with confidence. I think because of my career in psychology, I had a good understanding of myself, a good self-awareness, which laid the foundations in my personal experience. Um, but yeah, it was a case of, there were a number of occasions where I thought to myself, right, okay. And literally before I met that first professor who set the wheels in motion um, with the diagnosis of the connective tissue condition and then the suggestion of me needing these upright images. I remember the night before that appointment, writing down a list of, okay, these are my symptoms. Which ones could be imagined and which ones are physically visible? And trying to figure out, I mean, I've still got the list of says trying to figure out what's real and what isn't real. Yeah. Um, so you doubt yourself, but then there was this gut feeling of, I'm going to die if nobody listens to me. I know what's happening. And I lived on my own, like I said, with the children. And I, nobody else saw what was happening behind closed doors. Do you know, I was on my hands and knees crawling from one bedroom to the next to put them to sleep at night. And um there were a couple of occasions which just reinforced me no this is happening something is not right you've got to try so i think there's the power in that understanding that's what you said there the foundations of self-awareness i mean you know if anyone's to take anything away here is is you know we can all do that we can all there are tools mm -hmm. there are processes there are activities that we can engage in that will increase our self-awareness right yeah and that is fundamental and for so much in in the human experience to be able to have that coupled with that if you're able to access your intuition which is that gut mechanism which is that yeah. second brain um before it gets too analytical so so many of us are caught in the analytical brain all the time and and you know we can come up with a million different problems can't we yeah. um, but sometimes yeah. it takes an extreme event to trigger the 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 relationship back to that gut feeling right um, yeah but it's absolutely. To be like that. I'm, I'm wondering as well did the did the accident 
trigger a dormant thing that was a condition that was all there already there um, good question uh one one i've been having to work on quite a lot recently um i was born with this condition with the genetic connective tissue condition so i guess a predisposed weakness in my college in my collagen however the genetic testing showed that it's it's a very rare misspelling in a specific gene that genes usually linked to this connective tissue condition but in my case the spelling's different to other people's so they don't understand its significance but when they put it through the the you know the genetic systems testing software it shows up as a stable misspelling in my genes as such so it shouldn't cause any issues with my health um I'd had a couple of aches and pains prior to that through life and some strange conditions when I was pregnant um, with both of my children. But I was told that there was just a sensitivity to pregnancy hormones. Um, we had my parents tested and my older brother uh, throughout this process. When I'd had the surgeries in Washington, the initial two surgeries in 2017, I came back convinced that I had these 13 different diagnosed types of this Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, this connective tissue condition. And I was convinced I had a more serious form of it. And so I paid for further genetic testing, which involved um, a, another diagnosis of it, but also involved checking my family members. And my mum and my older brother have got the exact same genetic condition. They are very healthy, very active, um, you know, the foster carers they've adopted a little girl who's younger than my two my parents so they're really hands-on and my brother works you know he runs a farm and he's really hands-on he's not got poor health so I think that had it not been for the accident I would have been able to continue in the capacity that I already was doing which was hands-on mom at the gym you know uh, working constantly just a very active life yeah 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 interesting also acknowledging your body's attempt to heal with the, that tether that the, yeah know, i mean it's the infinite intelligence right of of our bodies and what they can withstand and, and how adaptive they are right it's do incredible you have a, do you have a do you have a your perspective now do you have a resilient perspective of your body um or or is or do you feel vulnerable weak you know i guess a perspective right yeah, it is. Um, I'm, I'm just going to close this window because there's a lot of gardening noise outside. So. Um, I think initially when I got poorly prior to being diagnosed, my interpretation of my body was weakness. Um, a lot of shame, a lot of hiding my condition, a lot of hiding my symptoms because I didn't have a diagnosis. Therefore, I didn't have a reason as such. When I was eventually validated and I had the reason for it, um, I think that was just sheer stubbornness that kicked in and a complete survival instinct. And then this past year of shielding where we've been stuck indoors, a lot of time to think, a lot of time for you know, post-traumatic stress and memories and 
things to start yep. piecing that together and also needing to try to recover but not being able to access care or travel for care. Um, I've been on a real roller coaster and I think I've learned that my instinct is to feel angry at my body or frustrated by it because it slows me down. My brain works a million miles an hour sometimes. Right. Other times it can't function at all because of, you know, the pain and other things, the damage that's been caused. Um, but when I think of it as in try and be grateful, when I try and really work on this gratitude for, do you know what? It sounds silly, but my legs are absolutely agonizing. I have hundreds of dislocations throughout my whole body every day now, um, constantly dislocating. And I could be frustrated at it, but if I think, right, okay, I am still walking. I've still walked from this room to that room today and try and be grateful for my legs or try and be grateful for the different parts of my body. That really helps. It sounds silly, but it really does help. Yeah. And I mean, that's uh yeah, I, I totally hear you. And that's, that's, um, again, a fundamental takeaway for anyone, you know, it's that is that perspective shift and that gratitude towards what we do have and what you can actually do. It's almost a yeah. thing. Um, rather than being my mind and my body against one another. Yes. That doesn't yeah. work. No, it doesn't work. And you're creating a, you're, you're harmonizing and you're creating that harmony, whether it's between the two you know brain centers between two hemispheres of the brain mm -hmm. creating that coherence that will help the coherence with the body as well and that's um have, have you felt that the your background in psychology do you think that's that helped incredibly yeah um absolutely because i knew the basic things to do you know um one of the main things, although like, you know, this cognitive behavioral therapy and there's been this constant awareness of my thoughts, you know, and, and if I start going into this negative cycle, because there have been times I was on suicide watch um, following my second surgery, 24-hour um, suicide watch in hospital. And there have been times since where I've wondered, do I want to, this isn't the life I fought for. Like, what is this life that I'm stuck in? Um, and you've really got to become aware of these thoughts and allow myself to analyze them. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for my, you know, my past, my career, my history. Right. Um, and breathing as well, trying to relax with the pain rather than tense up against it. Yeah. So this is, oh, this is fundamental. And, you know, at the, at the root of our, of our, of our thoughts, is a belief and if we can access the belief that's creating those thoughts it's mm -hmm. an incredible sort of you know plucking the plucking the weed from the root as it were effect you know okay. and and in, in those moments we can believe that we are going to heal you know mm -hmm. that's a fundamental belief that we are going to heal then the thoughts can reaffirm that and then we begin to have physiological effects and we begin to actually yeah. feel that and when we feel that oh then then our reality begins to change and begins to manifest in that way. Um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so it's such such an important thing to be able to monitor our thoughts and know what is the root belief of those thoughts. Um, wow. So did you at any point, I mean, you've mentioned your children, I imagine your children as I have two, two sons and the motivation factor there for me is strong, but 
for you as a mother in particular i just you you had the conversation with with the children yeah you know do i carry on i mean that must have been harrowing and how how did that go i mean they're, they're incredible humans um at the time at the, the this conversation had to be said, had to be done numerous times, unfortunately, and goodbyes had to be said and plans had to be made for afterwards. And initially, it was, I remember my mum's reaction, and that was that was the thing that I kind of gauged it off. My mum was with me when I got this information, and her first response was, don't tell anybody, it might not be true like this complete denial it's not happening right and I thought oh my god like now I don't know what to do and I, that really confused me and eventually I realized that no I need to tackle this head on we've got to crowdfund we've got to which I wasn't comfortable with at all um and because we had to crowdfund the children had to know things they had to know because everybody around us including children in their classes we're asking them questions, telling them to look after mummy, which I, I didn't like because I felt it was too much responsibility for them, considering the risk that I was at. Um, and yeah, I had to tell them that if I didn't have the surgeries, I would die. And if I do have the surgeries and we managed to get this money for these surgeries, which I promise we will do, then there's a chance I won't die. And my son is the eldest. So he was seven and he's very emotionally intelligent. Um, he's, a, he's a miniature psychologist, do you know? And, um, but he was like, mummy, I want the numbers. Like, what are the numbers? So I'd, I'd try and write, I'd draw out what was happening and what they was gonna do with the surgery for them. Cause he likes the information quite like myself. Um, my daughter, complete different coping mechanism. Don't wanna know and almost a wall went up between us to a degree that she put there to protect herself. Emotional mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. And that stayed there for a couple of years until I literally remember the day where I just saw that she was allowed, she allowed herself to get close to me again um, when I was in recovery. So yeah, this conversation had to be had. And initially it was that. And as they got older, because this happened over a space of a couple of years, um, they became more aware. And also scared of who I became whilst I was post-surgery. Um, you know, it was, it was a scary experience for them, especially when I did lose touch with reality and I was delusional for some time. Um, plus travelling for months across the world. It was this constant, okay, we've just got to drip feed them now, bits of information. And they made plans, they helped me plan my funeral um, and made plans for their wishes and my wishes for afterwards. So it was difficult. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking a more appropriate title was <laughs> rare resilience, but miracle resilience at this at this point. Mm. You know, things that are going on. I, I picked up on something there you said very quickly. Um, crowdfunding for yourself. Now, is, was that a, a self-worth piece that was coming up there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely was. Um, 
and how have you reconciled that now because you know i can say to my blue in the face that you're totally worthy and deserving of life and you should go and try everything uh, to, to, to maintain that um, mm. but how have you how has that journey been I went from being the helper to the yeah. unable to do anything, completely dependent upon everybody. Um, from being the independent person who I didn't have an awful lot of friends. I focused particularly on the children from being a single mum when there was one and two through to my work and my career. And it was that was I was tunnel vision. So to suddenly lose everything that I defined myself by, which was being a helpful person, having, I guess I realized how much worth I placed on that. Um, to then suddenly being helpless, uh, it was very difficult. And I couldn't have done that without a group of, a particular group of women who stepped up and got the campaign going and, you know, helped me, just reinforced me that I am worthy of it. And then each time the surgery wasn't enough, I was so ashamed. The shame was incredible. Coming back home and saying, wow. I've taken all this money off these people and I, I need more, or I'm still going to die. It took me nearly a year to say it. Um, wow. And even now, I'm told that, and I know that, it, it's very difficult to find a difference between am I recovering or am I deteriorating? because my days fluctuate so much. Um, but my spinal cord retethered itself. Um, so my spine is still unstable and that is causing a downward pull on my brain. So my brain is now at the verge of herniating through my skull, um, which compresses my brainstem. So if I'm upright for any length of time, I'm starting to re-experience those old symptoms. Um, and I am told by doctors, although they're not always right. And um, I take each day as it comes, but I am told by doctors that I will likely end up hard fused with hardware uh, from my skull down to my pelvis. So I'll have no movement of my head or my spine by the end of it. Um, that's a hard one to come to terms with. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. And I feel like that's the, this journey with you, your body and your intuition will continue to guide you. Um, yes. You know, accordingly through that. Um, and also with the, with the crowdfunding to me, I observe that that really is a unconditional gift. There's, an, mm. there's a difference between somebody giving you something with an expectation and there's a difference between an unconditional gift. And we, if we can tune into that, the energy of that, I feel yeah. like it, it resolves a lot of things, doesn't it? Because actually that's what that is, right? That was, that was all an unconditional gift. The majority, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Did you, did you feel there was a... You say the majority. Did you feel there was some some that that was conditional? Um, do you know? I am. I feel more than anything incredibly blessed to have experienced this side of humanity, like yeah. the, the kindness and hundreds of thousands of people all around the world support me 
and donated and helped me in various ways. If they couldn't donate, they would share, they'd give me the last pound. Do you know, that is immense um, and helps me see the world in a whole new light. There's, there's always a few people who, oh, trying to find the right words, um, had expectations that, that their money, their donation might, um, would ensure that I would have a specific quality of life, that I would be well again, that I would be this, that or the other. And it was a case of the, the surgery was specifically to save my life and stop me worsening the damage that was caused up until that point could not necessarily be fixed it might be it might not be and so my quality of life is different to what people expect and I see that this disappointment in that for some people when I tell them um you know there's that what why why are you not fixed well I donated and I feel that I have to explain this situation of wow I'm alive and I'm very grateful yeah this is this is so interesting. I mean, this I mean, this is a whole psychological paper in itself um, mm. to, to explore that. But um, I'm yeah. also fascinated by. Uh, I'm a bit of a Jungian geek, so anything to do with archetypes and uh-huh. the energies that they possess and the, how they manifest in our reality. So the archetype of the helper. You're going. You know, you're in that archetype. You're in alignment with it. Your life is successful. Therefore and you know you're, you're doing what you're probably here to do and having which like you said is the problem is is when we fully identify with that particular one archetype that that is us rather than yeah. it being a a energy that we're in in we're embodying and yeah. that we actually have at our disposal many many different archetypes that we can sort of call upon energy from an energy perspective and then be motivated by them, like the energy, you know, the archetype of the warrior. You know, there's moments and where you've got to make a decision. You've got to go, mm-hmm. do the thing, have direction. And then there's the the king archetype of being able to hold the kingdom and making sure everyone's flourishing. But yeah. it's when yeah. we identify with it, when the ego identifies with it, that it causes problems when it gets taken Absolutely. away. Mm-hmm. So I wonder now, are you able to to access other archetypes that support you? in yeah. being able to maintain that perspective you know um and if so what what would those be yeah um completely relate to what you just said it was like this sudden awareness of my happiness my identity mm-hmm. is completely based upon this external thing this this interpretation of who i am and then that gets stripped away um so it took adaption, it took time, um, but I think that, that survival kicked in and it was, okay, I'm doing this for my children. Each time I do know that, that you've got to find a reason, you've got to identify what your reason is. And I had to just take whatever was thrown at me. And like you say, the warrior, just warrior through, just get, get through it yeah. no matter what. Um, and just take each hit one at a time at a time and keep moving forward the best I could. And it was my mantra to myself was one second at a time. That was all I could cope. Mm. Um, now, it is very interesting that I recognised that my identity was com- and my, I guess, self-worth was really entwined with being a helper because I find myself, when I'm really struggling, with pain and everything else and adapting to things. One of the things I draw upon is, 
okay, how can I turn this into a positive to help other people? And that is my, my main driver. I have got children, obviously, and they do drive me. But I'm set the wall at times. But they, they are very aware, and this is a, a genetic condition. So I guess the words... Oh. Sometimes I wonder whether or not my existence, them watching me in pain, them watching me potentially deteriorate again is cruel and whether that helps them. And again, find that I'm entwined with this. Well, if I'm not helping them, maybe I shouldn't keep trying. Right. But I can fight against that with going, I can make a difference. I know my experiences are so unique. My psychology, um, experience my knowledge my awareness can help other people combined with my personal experiences and so that's again I have gone back to that helper type gone back to mm -hmm. yeah. back to the root but I am more aware I mean there's there's predominant yeah I mean there's predominant archetypes aren't there that that we inhabit that feel they feel more natural they feel more authentic yeah and um it's a case of being able to repurpose or re-identify with that archetype. Mm -hmm. I mean, in your yeah. case, I, you know, I, I have no doubt that you're destined to continue to help people. And, you know, now the challenge is figuring out how that shows up and how, what does that look like? You know, yeah. um, whether it's in a book, whether it's, you know, uh, people hearing your story, whether it's putting together a package of like these epic experienced resilience tools mm -hmm. that you can impart on others who are going through incredible difficulties you know um because it's like you've tested yourself in the hardest of battlegrounds you know and and you're here and you'll come back to, to the gift of you know experience and giving that gift to others of, of knowledge and how to you know use that yeah so i've no doubt that you'll you know yeah um well when on the day we first landed in Arizona for my final surgery, um, the local people, hundreds of them gathered together and they had um, a ball at the town hall and it raised 40,000 pounds that night. And I remember laying in bed in this Airbnb in Arizona, watching it and feeling overwhelmed with gratitude and, and all these emotions and fear and everything else. And um, I went online and I promised that the minute I got home, if I survived this, I was throwing a thank you ball for people. Um, within three or four months of coming home, I'd had another couple of surgeries on other body parts and then put together this ball and announced that I was launching a charity um, to help people with rare conditions to you know, advocate for them, to raise awareness of Ella's Dan loss and to be able to provide a care pathway for them by educating um, medical professionals on the condition. And then I realized that I hadn't allowed myself to heal. And so I explained to people, you know, I'm gonna take some time, I'm going to do this, but not to its potential initially do you know I'm going to help people I speak with people around the world on zoom who are going through similar circumstances we help one another um and so I have the foundation but it's 
I realized that I am inconsistent because of my health. You know, I'm still not where I imagined I would be um, health-wise. And so that inconsistency led me to try and change the pathway and my mission going forward of, okay, right, if I can't be consistently you know, available to help people going through all of these things, what can I do? And that's how I've come, I guess, to this, where I am being interviewed on multiple podcasts. I've written my story. Um, I think I feel like I've written three, to be honest with you. I need to figure out where that goes. Um, so I'm looking for publishing for that. And I have just been asked this week to, um, somebody's offered to fund a podcast to um, help me set up a podcast to speak with other people that have got rare conditions and medical professionals and try and move things forward within that industry. And that's something that does really interest me. So maybe that's the way my mission that's looks amazing. instead. That sounds amazing. I love that. And um, this is, so the Rare, Rare Resilience Foundation, is there a name for it? Is it, is it... Um, there's the Ellis Damos Foundation, um, which is, the foundation obviously that are set up to specifically help people with Ehlers-Danlos and yeah. associated conditions because mm -hmm. it brings all of its friends with it and you end up with a million diagnoses um but there's a the rare resilience is more about me going from being save Samantha this person who's sick and dying and um <sighs> requesting help to me giving something back so me now combining my experiences like I said with my psychological knowledge with my career and hopefully moving forward and, and helping people by story sharing by understanding their experiences um helping them find that resilience just dig deep and recognize maybe some of the negative automatic thoughts that are not helping them that are causing speed bumps in in the way of developing their resilience you know yeah um, that's so that, i love it I, i'm really quite excited about that because if i can invent i can envision this this foundation that's that's known for you know because the journey of having a diagnosis of a rare condition i imagine is a very lonely one yeah like immediately you're like fuck where else are the people that've got this right mm -hmm, absolutely how many humans have experienced that where they've had to go on this journey of exploration into the unknown where having a central place where people who have any rare condition can go and mm -hmm. sort of a community to sort of talk that yeah. is that that coupled with the psychological aspect of it i think that is crucial um as well as it you know uh, good knowledge and good signposting yeah. right and support absolutely i love that and for sure you should definitely have your own podcast that'd be amazing and um so i'm asking this actually for myself as much as the broader sort of listeners anyone listening mm -hmm. how could anyone how could how could somebody support you in maintaining the consistency mm -hmm. that you won't necessarily if it's done properly if it's done almost like a business you won't yeah. have to be there all the time but you are the figurehead you're the founder you're the visionary so mm -hmm. how can people support the, the realization of that okay um to me it's about as much awareness as possible of my experience because that draws it, it was so dramatic it was so 
traumatic that people become invested when when they hear that story you know emotionally they care and when you care about something you learn about something and education is the key the lack of education is the death of far too many people with rare illnesses um so raising awareness uh sharing my story um reaching out to me um through social media any of these things is particularly helpful um as i say i'm looking to publish the book i don't know which route to go down yet so if anybody's got any advice on that kind of thing that would be amazing um but yeah just basically joining me i'm gonna put my father on the spotlight and uh because he's had a couple of books um published okay okay he's got publishers so i uh that'll be one thing that i'm gonna yeah that would be fabulous (laughs) about that for sure yeah yeah so supporting in that in that regard is, and I, th- I feel that's like the first phase of the development of the resilience um yeah. you know, the rare resilience foundation is is that gathering the gathering of the tribe and the community right and absolutely. awareness raising awareness around it yeah yeah cool are, are you on clubhouse by the way um i i am actually yes do you know what i've only just joined i am um yeah. my clubhouse you're going to ask me for my well, this is, I guess, um, how do we find each other on Clubhouse? I mean, I've been on there a while. Just to see a name. I've got a it? name. Yeah, I've got a name. One second. I should right, okay. Oh, it's just at Samantha underscore Lou, L-O-U. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that I found a platform to be really powerful. Yeah. I mean, networking. Like okay. Hyper networking powerful. So um, I'd love to support in that as well in, in setting up a room when, cause I feel like in my, in my limited experience, but once when a room is correctly advertised and mm-hmm. enough people who are given enough notice, um, they, they're really, really powerful. And, yeah. and it's a culture at the moment, at least it's a culture of, I don't succeed unless you succeed. And this sort of like mutually lifting each other up. So I'll follow you yeah, you follow me. That's lovely. Yeah. Um, it's a very powerful one. So I, and there's and there's one that I would recommend to go on, but you know I'll do that sort of off air. Okay. But um, that we can create um, incredible networks and 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 just connect to people that are in powerful places and influential people. That'd be brilliant. So that's so that's that's uh, make take advantage of that hundred percent. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. I feel I feel like I could go on for for hours, and and I I am very aware of you know how hard it is for you to sort of endure this um for this long so i really appreciate okay. that I won't, I won't go much longer i've just got a few final sort of closing questions no it's fine i appreciate the chance to speak about it i do feel that i've kind of combined so much into a tiny not a tiny yeah. thing you know but there's so many different aspects to what's happened yeah yeah, yeah I, can, I can imagine <laughs> absolutely um do, do you have I mean, you've already mentioned one uh, taking one, you know, minute at a time, hour at a time, you know, a little mm-hmm. bit in those difficult, painful moments. Yeah. But do you have a power habit that you use most days to to keep you keep you on the straight and narrow? Um, it, literally for me, um, it goes back to basics because I find that. And I think a lot of empaths are very similar is that it's easier to put other people before ourselves. Um, and so I, I have this tussle with my energy. It's a case of, okay, right. If I do this, then I'm not going to be able to give the children this attention. If I shower, 
and then I'm going to lose two hours worth of energy that day. And, you know, there's lots of different yeah. things to work out. Um, so I think that it's about checking in with myself every single day, multiple times a day of, right, okay, where are you right now? How much energy have you got? What are you capable of? Rather than just trying to plow ahead whilst I feel I've got energy and then crashing and traumatizing everybody around me mm-hmm. because yeah. – um that's something my daughter's actually taught me the children became really aware of mummy stop sit down you're crashing like I can see it please don't do this anymore and that was a big wake-up call to me where I just thought okay pushing on is not helping them it's damaging me so so self-awareness breathing work um breathing is you know you find when you're holding a lot of stress when you're holding a lot of tension when you're trying to develop your resilience, you don't necessarily breathe the same way. And for me, remembering to just stop and breathe and go back to basics of, right, okay, am I giving myself the nutrition I need? Am I breathing, taking a moment? Am I becoming aware of my surroundings or am I getting lost inside all of the chaos? Um, That's really important to me. And I think it is something that helps massively. Yeah, I'd second that. Absolutely. And any, everything that you've mentioned, you know, all the sort of um, strategies and tools, you know, we don't have to wait for, you know, something dramatic to happen in our lives to implement. No. You know, so many of us take the, our, our existence for granted, right? Absolutely. Like, oh, we don't have to do breath work. I don't have to do that. Don't wait. Just don't wait for the for the crash. Like these are really powerful maintenance tools that keeps your keel deep and strong and, and, and everything maintained. And, and That's it. don't wait for that crash. Yeah, this is. Yeah. If you're capable of being more, why would you not grab that opportunity and, and work on that and, and hone in on those skills, especially something so simple as the way you're breathing and checking in with yourself and, and asking yourself what I need. Okay. Yeah. okay, I'm feeling pain. What does my body need right now? What does my mind need? Um, even if it's just connecting just with somebody, connection's incredibly important. Yeah. Um, and I think, like you say, it's that when you're trying to develop resilience, becoming aware of your unhealthy coping mechanisms, we've all got them. And you don't need to wait until resilience can be needed in just this world a regular life you need it so becoming aware of your unhealthy coping mechanisms and we've all got them and training yourself to recognize these thoughts and question them and and are these thoughts are that I've learned to believe as facts or do you know like can they be questioned are they true are they not true are they helping me are they serving where I want to be or are they holding me back um these are things that all of us can do and they're not necessarily comfortable, but living a life with unhealthy coping mechanisms is not comfortable anyway. So, Yeah, absolutely. It's the root. Like I said earlier, it's the root of those, those beliefs. If we can access those root beliefs and identify where they came from, who gave them to us, uh-huh. you know, are these, are these beliefs that I genuinely hold? And if not, to, to let them go, change yeah. them. And it's really empowering. Yeah, it mm. is. It is. Um, do you have a book recommendation for everyone? Oh, um, instantly when you say that, Brené Brown comes to mind. Oh, I love Brené Brown. The Power of Vulnerability. Um, yes. yes. That, I listened to Brené Brown over and over. You say about the crowdfunding, the, the sudden awareness of who I am and, oh, my gosh, that's been ripped away. Who am I? And 
how do I let the whole world watch in on me when I'm in my worst ever state mentally, physically, physically, you know, everything. Um, Brenny Brown's books, amazing. Just helped me accept that I need to be vulnerable and able to be able to move forward and let go of shame and all these things that I associate to different stories that I tell myself that are not really true, do you know? It's, she did a wonderful job in in bringing awareness to to vulnerability as a strength, and and, mm. and actually it's almost like an art form to be. Yeah. You know, she, I think she studied it, didn't she, for years, just the, just vulnerability, and it took her down some interesting paths. Yeah. But she's she's trying to sort of implement it in the corporate world, which again, you know, there's this there's this notion of being vulnerable is weak, and weak is therefore bad. You know, it's like all these judgments around it. Um, yeah. Again, if we can arrive to have a relationship with vulnerability that that is affirming um i think again empowerment somebody somebody said on uh, linkedin actually i think it was yesterday or the day before and it was a very large company a very influential person had said do you think the, the question was you know there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there and they share the story of the successes over and over and over again but they generally hide the times where they've had to, you know, the gritty, the raw, the real, the times where they've been up against it and had to power through. Um, do we share those or are we creating an awareness of our weak spots was the question. Right. And to me, absolutely we share them because yes. you're aware of them, you've managed them, you've overcome them and they no longer hold you back by sharing them, by facing that and overcoming the vulnerability. So yeah it's uh like you say it is it's empowering it is and 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 you you're adding to the cultural shift in 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 moving away from the taboo of vulnerability Mm -hmm. changing the cultural perspective of vulnerability and if we can do that you know you still everything starts from an individual place like Mm -hmm. once you can do that inner work and then radiate that out massive change can can happen thousands of lives can be saved if someone feels they can go to work and be vulnerable and be human and mm-hmm. be supported and not you know not ridiculed oh man yeah we'd be we'd be making strides wow, amazing well samantha it's been it's been fascinating absolute pleasure an mm-hmm. emotional roller coaster for me and i'm very i feel very inspired and i'm very grateful to be able to capture this and i'm looking forward to being able to support you in any way i can in the future and brilliant uh, yeah Thank you so much. That's great. No, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I look forward to working with you, hopefully. Okay. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Returning Warrior. Stay tuned for more upcoming episodes. I have many, many more incredible guests lined up and cannot wait to share their hero's journey with you on our next episode of The Returning Warrior podcast.